Um, I'm here with Professor Lauren McCarthy, whose research focuses on the relationship between law and society in Russia. Uh, her book, Trafficking Justice, uh, How Russian Police Use New Laws from Crime to Courtroom, centers on the issue of human trafficking. Uh, Professor McCarthy is a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Institutions and Higher Development, the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, and we're lucky to have her at UMass in our own Legal Studies and Political Science Department. Uh, Professor McCarthy, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. Yeah. Um, so this is a devastating conflict um, that has escalated pretty rapidly in the past week, but it didn't emerge in a vacuum. Uh, there is a storied history of, you know, of Russian presence in Ukraine and of a, a conflict within Ukraine, a civil war uh, that has been roiling in the country for the past eight years or so. Would you be comfortable in giving us, you know, a Cliff Notes version of how this conflict emerged? Sure. Yeah, this is um, the Cliff Notes version is challenging because it's a long history between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, as you and your listeners may know, Russia and Ukraine both emerged as independent states after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, before that, Ukraine had, before incorporation into the Soviet Union, Ukraine had had a history of independence. Um, and so it voted itself to become independent out of the Soviet Union in 1991. Fast forward quite a lot of time. Um, there's always been a bit of a split in Ukraine between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. And for a long time, that played out in politics. And so you would have essentially 50% of, of Ukraine voting for the Russian-speaking candidate and 50% of Ukraine voting for the um, Ukrainian-speaking candidate. And ultimately, this led to the first uh, revolution in Ukraine in 2004, where the existing uh, post-Soviet from the Soviet Union president was um, accused of falsifying elections. They had to cancel the elections, started them over uh, because of mass street protests. And that was called um, the Maidan Revolution. That was 2004. Again, fast forward 10 more years, you have several additional elections and you have the um, the president of Ukraine about to sign a cooperation agreement with the European Union. And at the last minute changed his mind because of the influence of Russia and Russia's threats to withdraw gas and a more favorable agreement with Russia. That brought people out onto the streets in 2014, again, in the revolution that's now called Euromaidan. And that revolution ends up with the president fleeing to Russia um, and a new government coming into power. And so at that same time, taking advantage of um, the chaos in Ukraine, the Russian special forces moved into Crimea and annexed Crimea. And in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbass, um, in the areas of Donetsk and Lugansk, the, um, a separatist movement arose and claimed to be independent uh, and claimed that they wanted to be independent. They weren't yet recognized by anyone. And so Russia and Russian-backed separatists in Donetsk and Lugansk have been at war with Ukraine for the past eight years. And so the uh, recognition of those people's republics of Lugansk and Donetsk was the escalation, I think, that led to our current situation. 
so we have this, you know, these eight years leading up to the, the events of the past week. Could you give us a quick uh, highlight reel of what that past week has looked like? Um, we've been doing this on our show to the extent that it's possible to keep up um, because, again, these events are unfolding very rapidly. But, you know, what lit the flame this past week? What, you know, what prompted uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin to say, no, we, we are going to in, invade Ukraine. And then, you know, in the oh, overnight, I think the, the Belarusian president saying, you know, we're going to come to your aid and also invade Ukraine. Um, what has prompted the really rapid acceleration of these events? So the first thing that happened was the massing of, of Russian troops along the border with Ukraine from multiple directions under the guise of military exercises. And so they were um, running, quote, military exercises in Belarus, in Crimea, uh, from the land and the sea, and also along Russia's uh, western border with Ukraine. And so by the time we got to a couple of weeks ago, Russia had massed about 190,000 troops um, on the, on the uh, edges around the borders of Ukraine. And nevertheless, we all, and I count myself among them, thought this was a bluff. This was a, an attempt by um, Vladimir Putin to ask the West to reconsider the post-Cold War security infrastructure in Europe. Um, Russia has long felt that NATO has expanded too close to its borders um, and has been concerned about what that means. They've felt encircled um, and they have felt left out of the European security architecture in the post-Cold War era. And so, again, many of us, myself included, thought that this was an attempt for Russia to get the West to the table. And sure enough, the West came to the table and they started to talk. And then Russia set, gave a list of demands that said, essentially, we want you to guarantee that Ukraine will never join NATO and that uh, you will remove all NATO military equipment back to the um, borders of NATO before any of the Eastern European countries joined. Um, the West said, no, we're not going to uh, dictate any individual country's security situation. They can choose whatever alliance, security alliances they want to be a part of. And no, we're not moving all of the stuff back from NATO. And so for Putin, that was... Um, that was a failure, and there, you know, they went on and on and on about a discussion, several discussions. Um, but at the end of the day, Putin, I think, really believes that NATO in and the Americans in particular are out to get Russia and to take Russia apart and to take its natural resources and believe that it shouldn't exist. Um, this is Putin's worldview, and so for him, the the negotiations. Um, having led to no, no reconsideration of the post-war security, the post-Cold War security architecture, really meant for him that he had, he felt that he had to make some kind of offensive, defensive move. And um, in doing so, he recognized the independence of the two people's republics in Donetsk and Lugansk. And then the next morning, said that he was undertaking what he called, in quotes, a special military operation to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. 
And that's how we ended up here. Right. Um, and you, you mentioned a post-Cold War security strategy. The U.S. and NATO uh, allies have deployed in Eastern Europe. Um, it's very important to, you know, say outright that this is a refugee crisis. We have evacuees, uh, you know, moving through the Polish border, trying to get out of Ukraine. Like, this is a devastating, uh, a devastating crisis. Um, at the same time, one thing that I'm, as somebody who's continually learning about this and does not <laughs> know that much, I, one thing that I have read about um, is, you know, the United States presence in Eastern Europe. Um, and at the very beginning of, you know, at the very beginning of last week, we, we knew that uh, President Biden had deployed troops to uh, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. It was very clear from the beginning that NATO and the presence of NATO was kind of cramping uh, Putin into and, and prompting his kind of this flare up. Um, so my, my question to you as somebody who knows the region intimately and like the geopolitics of that region um, is to what extent is the NATO presence in Eastern Europe uh, kind of contributing to or uh, setting the stage for a conflict to erupt? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, and, and I think, you know, to frame it a different way, the question is, is NATO to blame for what happened? Did NATO start this? And I think that's Putin's narrative. From the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, all of everything that Putin says about current Russian history is really about this sort of conflict. And like, NATO's goal was to uh, counteract Soviet influence over Eastern Europe. And so the Russian story is, when the Cold War ended, why didn't NATO disappear? Why did it have to keep existing? And why did it have to keep coming closer? Um, and so I think that that's a very powerful piece of, of the Russian narrative. And I don't think it's totally wrong. I think, you know, NATO says all the time we're a defensive alliance. We're not, um, we're not trying to start anything. But the simple encirclement of, of Russia is, I think, perceived as a threat, regardless of whether it's a defensive alliance or an offensive one. Um, don't forget that Russia has been invaded several times over the past century, two centuries, um, over land borders from the West. And so for Russia, that's a real sort of existential threat is, is not having secure borders. And so part of what Russia has been trying to do is to discourage any of its former, with the Baltics accepted, Lat Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, who are already in NATO, has been trying very hard to discourage any of its former, um, the former Soviet republics from joining NATO. And it's done that in a variety of ways, and, and this is one of them. Um, and I think the great irony here is that all of Putin's attempts to bring Ukraine sort of back into the fold are going to end up driving Ukraine further into Europe. And you can see that just this morning, um, President Zelensky signed uh, an agreement with the European Union about admission and membership into the EU. Um, so, I, you know, I think... The ultimate goal here is probably to make sure that Ukraine doesn't enter NATO um, more so than it is to make sure that Ukraine doesn't enter the EU. 
what prevents and what has prevented Ukraine from joining NATO um, in previous decades? You know, as far back as George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev, there was a kind of clear message that Ukraine would not join NATO. And I think that was also the narrative surrounding uh, the past month's escalation of events. Um, So far, what has prevented Ukraine from joining NATO? And why is it such a sticking point for for President Zelensky, where he says, you know, we we would like to align ourselves with Western powers? Yeah, so there's two things that I would point out. The first one is that NATO uh, does everything by consensus. So every member of NATO has to want Ukraine. And I think that there has not been consensus on that. I think the concern of antagonizing Russia up until the present moment, uh, up until the war began, which I think now it's a very different kind of calculus, the concern about antagonizing Russia, knowing how Russia felt about um, uh, Ukraine joining NATO was one thing that made many of the NATO members very concerned about offering Ukraine membership. The other thing that I think has been part of Putin's strategy and Russia's strategy for preventing former Soviet republics from joining NATO is that there's an ongoing conflict in Ukraine. And that makes it very, very hard to join NATO because NATO has a um, a mutual defense pact. And so if any NATO country is attacked, all NATO countries come to its aid. And so they're very hesitant about taking in any any countries where there's already existing conflict. And so you saw this play out also in Georgia. It'd be kind of like a liability. It's a huge liability, Mm -hmm. right? And especially because that conflict is with, um, you know, again, up until this past week, Russian-backed separatists. Um, And so there's a lot of concern about a NATO-Russia clash if um, Ukraine were to join. Plus, I don't think, you know, most NATO members are not interested in having a a sort of unstable um, conflict potential country as part of their membership. And I think you see the same thing with Georgia and uh, Putin's war in Georgia in 2008 when there are, in, you know, there are now sort of unrecognized breakaway territories in Georgia, and that makes Georgia essentially ineligible for membership because there's just too much conflict still. It's, it's kind of turned into a... as everything in politics does. There's this rift and it's kind of turned into, you know, Republicans alleging that Biden is feckless. He doesn't do enough. Uh, He's not as austere about this as he should be. Um, And on the other on on the other wing, you have, you know, Democrats lauding him for warning us. Like you said, a lot of people didn't believe that this was going to happen. Historically, we've we've seen that sanctions uh, have their moral have their moral value, uh, you know, there is, there is value in, in, you know, being on the right side of history, quote unquote, um, but that they have a tenuous, a, a tenuous effect, um, especially when they're applied incrementally, as we've seen with, uh, with this recent crisis, you know, saying uh, almost naively, if Putin dares to go further, will apply however many sanctions, um, knowing full well that he he will. Uh, he will uh, aggra- do whatever it takes to aggravate the situation and get his way. Um, and another facet of the, the issue on sanctions, the discussion around sanctions is their humanitarian impact and how, you know, the, the brunt 
of the effect, the, the negative impact of sanctions falls on working people. So with that in mind, what can the U.S. government do uh, in this predicament where there's a clear humanitarian cost? What, how, how, can we, how can we help? So I, I think there's a lot there's a lot in that question. Um, I think that uh, President Biden has handled this very skillfully. Um, he has worked very hard behind the scenes to get all of the European countries, even very reticent countries like Germany, on board with sanctions. And then he's let Europe do it first because this is fundamentally a European problem. Um, there is a war in Europe, uh, not in the United States. And so then he has piled on the sanctions from the United States perspective. And so I think that that's been very skillful. Um, the goal of the sanctions from the U.S. perspective and from the European perspective is really to split the elite surrounding Putin. Um, under the Putin regime, many people have become very wealthy around Putin, and much of their wealth is stored abroad. And so the sanctions are essentially to say, you're backing the wrong horse you should reconsider, right? If you want to keep the wealth that you've made, if you want to keep your, your fancy house in London, if you want to keep your yacht in France, if you want to keep um, all of these things that you've accumulated, sticking with Putin and continuing to back Putin is not the answer. And so for that reason, you see a lot of the sanctions aimed at the elite, particular individuals who are very close with Putin are being sanctioned and their assets are being frozen abroad. And that's really the goal of these kinds of targeted sanctions. But you're right, sanctions tend not to, you know, in 2014, the United States, Europe, sanctioned the heck out of Russia. Um, and Russia was like, fine, we'll just do it ourselves then. And they used their stabilization fund, they stabilized their economy, and they just carried on. Um, these are different. They're higher. They're sort of more intense. They're more targeted at members of the elite that were previously left out. They're targeted at Putin himself. Um, and they've brought along countries that were not interested in playing the game before. So, for example, Switzerland, where tons of money is, short, is stored um, offshore for, for many of these people who've gotten very rich, they're also freezing accounts. And that's highly unusual given their neutral status in almost everything and their banking sector. And so these sanctions, I think, are really different. Um, and at the same time, the Russian economy is going to suffer greatly and ordinary people are going to suffer greatly. Um, and that's not even to mention the people who are, are bravely going out onto the street to protest the war. Um, the Russian state will become more repressive. Um, they are really going to be squeezed economically. And so I think, you know, that's, that's also a point worth, worth remembering as we also, uh, that sanctions do affect ordinary people. The ruble dropped to its lowest exchange rate ever. Um, and it's going to, and, and the banks are sanctioned and Russia is being kicked out of the SWIFT um, banking communication system that allows for easy money transfer. So just a personal anecdote, I'm working with a transcriber in Russia who right before the war started said, the ruble is falling in, in anticipation of this war can you start paying me in dollars? And now I'm not even sure if I can pay her because Russia is out of the SWIFT 
uh, bank account. So there's, uh, this is, of course, the most suffering that is going on is on Ukrainian soil, right? Civilians are being killed. Uh, people are joining up in the military who have no military training whatsoever. Um, and, and there's going to be tremendous suffering and an incredibly long rebuilding process in Ukraine. But Russians will also suffer the consequences of their leaders' actions, um, ordinary Russians will. I, I know there is so much literature and so much opining um, on who might win the war, who, who might emerge victorious. Should we underestimate the Ukrainian army? Are we overestimating the Russian army? Um, but I would love to focus, especially because this is the focus uh, of your research, um, on the effect that this war will have on regular people. Um, what historically has Russian repression looked like? Uh, and what do you predict will be the penalty of this war uh, for, for people like you and me? So um, for ordinary people, uh, Russia, Russia is a very complicated place. You know, it's very hard to know um, how many people actually support the war. And I think it's likely that as the costs of war continue to go up, ordinary Russians will support the war less. Um, I think the, the NATO narrative in Russia is very powerful. Um, the NATO encirclement, NATO is trying to destroy us. And for years, uh, eight years, the discussion of what's been happening in the Donbass has focused in the Russian media on um, Ukrainians killing people in the Donbass for no reason, human rights violations. Uh, these are all propaganda. They're not true. Um, but this has resonated with the Russian public who, for the ordinary person, if we're talking about the ordinary person, gets most of their news from the television. And the Russian media is primarily, uh, almost exclusively television media, state-run uh, or state-owned or state-friendly, um, however you want to frame it. And so I think for, you know, there is about there most recently anything that kind of even approximates asking like would you support a war in Ukraine about 50 percent people said yes but that said um, there is very little true information getting to the Russian public through their media only yesterday did they admit that there have been military losses Ukraine is reporting that over 5,000 Russian soldiers have died and so there is going to be a point at which it is impossible to hide the cost of this war because someone is going to know someone whose son died or, you know, someone's cousins, aunts, uncles, you know, grandson is going to know somebody who died. And the connections between Russia and Ukraine are very close. Somebody's going to know somebody in one of these cities where they're using cluster munitions against civilians. And that's going to get back to the people, the things that people in Russia trust the most are stories from people that they know, their friends, their family. They don't trust the media in any form. Um, and Russia is doing its utmost, I think, to prevent information getting to the people. So they're not giving casualty numbers. They're barely saying that there are casualties. Um, they are 
trying to slow down access to Facebook, slow down access to Twitter. The head of the human rights, President's Human Rights Council today just said we should ban Facebook because it's full of disinformation. R- media outlets have been prevented from using the, uh, have been threatened with being blocked by the Russian telecommunications agency for using the word war or for using the word um, incursion. And so the, the Russian media sphere is also under attack. And then, you know, this is not to mention the over 5,000 people, uh, demonstrators, who have um, been arrested while demonstrating, um, often brutally by police. And so, I, you know, I think that the, there's, there is a high likelihood that as a result of um, Russia being cut off from everything, that there will be much more room for repression. And the Russian attorney general has also said that anyone who aids with like as big of a broad way as you can think of the word aid meaning, aiding the Ukrainians will have committed treason. Um, and that's, you know, that's punishable by up to 20 years in prison. And so I, I see the domestic politics of Russia becoming much more repressive. Um, I also see a lot of brave people, you know, trying to stand up to push back against that. But this is a trend that's been happening for about the past year. And this is kind of the the peak of that um, of that trend that's been already ongoing. Everything that you said has been very helpful uh, for my understanding of how this conflict is unfolding. Um, and I just wanted to thank you uh, for sharing your expertise. Um, it's a really unfortunate thing that's happening overseas, uh, and just because we won't experience, you know, the 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 same death and destruction on our soil doesn't mean that we shouldn't empathize and uh, seek to understand what's happening. Um, So thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you inviting me. And we didn't have a a ton of time to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. But I I think it is, you know, definitely worth highlighting that this is a war of aggression. And there are a lot of Ukrainian civilians who are suffering Mm -hmm. um, and probably will continue to do so over the next several days while things are still getting resolved. And so anything that, that people feel that they can do to, to help out, whether that's monetarily or um, calling you know, senators and um, other representatives, those are things that everybody can do to, um, to do their part to help in this terrible humanitarian disaster. Yeah. There are no winners in war. There are no winners. There are no winners in war. Um, Just wrapping this up, where can people donate their money? So there are a number of um, humanitarian, depending on sort of where you want to direct your money, there are a number of um, humanitarian initiatives. There are, you know, you can always donate to the the UN High Commissioner on Refugees, but there are many more uh, local initiatives one is being run by the Kiev School of Economics, which is has a um, like a bank account in the United States, so you can donate very easily through that. There are several um, independent media sources that are also running, uh, particularly for your listeners who probably don't speak Russian. The Kiev Independent is doing really amazing on the ground work in English, um, which is really helpful. Medusa is another independent Russian. Um, media source that also does really good work in English. 
And and the other thing is that there is a ton of disinformation circulating about this war. And so part of the reason I mentioned the media sources is that it is really important to sort of know what the um, media sources are that are reliable and on the ground and doing that kind of reporting, because part of any war is disinformation. And I think that's been particularly um, prominent in this one. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those sources. And thank you for being on the show. Uh, Professor Lauren McCarthy. Thank you. You're listening to WMUA News.